So that's 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Kimberly. Good morning, everybody. Yeah. My name's Evan. Uh, my wife, if you're new here, welcome. By the way, if you're new or if, if you're still kind of trying to feel plugged in and you're not quite yet, we would love to get to know you. Back at the table in the back, we have iPads where you can get connected and in whatever way you feel the Spirit leading you to be connected, uh, whether it's volunteering or stepping into community, all is great. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the true joy and honor of leading this church alongside an incredible team. Honestly, our team feels like family. This is a church led by a community, um, and it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Last week, you heard from one of the leaders, Aaliyah Persley, a pastor of Community Formation. She did a fantastic job unpacking Paul's intro to 1 Corinthians. So we are in 1 Corinthians, Paul's ancient letter to this little church in the big city of Corinth. And we're in this letter all, most of 2020, okay? Uh, it was written by Paul. We've, I'm just a quick review. He was a man sent by the resurrected Jesus to go to the Gentiles. How many Gentiles in the room? Probably tons. Thanks for Paul. So like Paul was sent by Jesus to the Gentiles to bring the good news that not Caesar uh, and not any other government was truly the authority of the world, uh, but Jesus is. This was the news. And in the process, Paul planted a bunch of the very first churches. We're one of them. There are, there are literally hundreds of thousands of them all over the world now. Uh, and one of those churches in the first generation was in this city called Corinth. And Paul loved them. Um, we know from Acts 18, he spent at least 18 months with this church, which was a long time for Paul. He liked to move around a lot. He was always on the go. Um, by the way, I highly recommend you read Acts this year as a backdrop for 1 Corinthians. Uh, such a profound book. So thankful that God saw fit to include the history of the earliest churches for us, which is beautiful. So Paul planted Corinth. He stayed with them. And then he eventually left Corinth to keep planting churches. But at some point, here's the deal. A couple years go by, and he gets news that Corinth was in trouble. They were in conflict about all kinds of issues. Um, there were problems going on. Um, and he loves this church. Like, he loves them like a, like a father. He actually refers to himself as their truth, like their spiritual father. Um, and so not only does he get this secondhand info 
that they're in trouble, but he, he actually gets a firsthand letter from them, a letter we no longer have. Uh, but apparently, the, the Corinthians wrote Paul like a, a letter full of problems and questions that they were confused about. And so that's what this 1 Corinthians is all about. Um, this book is often divided in two parts. This helps. This is helpful. Part one is chapter one, verse 10 through six, chapter six, verse 20. And that's mostly Paul's response to this like secondhand info he found. <laughs> he, he heard about their problem. Like they don't know he knows this stuff when he's writing to them. He's like, hey, I heard, I heard about that. And they're like, whoa, how do you find that out? And then, and then chapter seven through 16, he's like, all right, now onto the letter you actually wrote me. Um, and so that's kind of the two halves of this letter. Um, they're basically parts one and two. And so today we step into part one, the content, where Paul's like, guys, okay, I'm hearing some things, some problems that are going on, and listen, his attitude is never like, hey, you're wrong, stop sinning, thus says the Lord. What are you guys thinking? It's not his attitude. Um, he actually does something way more compelling than that. He responds to each of their problems by teaching them to look through to look at every area of life through the lens of the gospel. He's like, look how beautiful the gospel is and look at your life through this lens. Paul's not being like a helicopter parent, like ready to slap their hands whenever they mess up. That's not what's going on. And so as Paul talks about these issues, here's what's going on. Paul is doing everything he can to show us how good and true and beautiful it is to live in step with the spirit of God. We do this by practicing the way of Jesus, not following secular culture or our own selfish impulses, but obeying the voice of God in every area of life. And so Paul's saying that's what it looks like to be fully human, to be truly human, flourishing in God's family. And by flourishing, I mean, uh, Paul means in the scriptures, a, a flourishing human family is a family that's in right relationship with God and one another and the world around them. He's like, this is that way, okay? That's our, our true identity as the loved children of God, like Aaliyah preached on last week. So throughout this letter, Paul's doing, he's saying, hey, not this way, but, but this way, because of Jesus and the goodness he has for us. And remember, he's, he's talking to people. He's talking to people who claim to follow Jesus. How many of you in the room claim to follow Jesus? Awesome. This is for you. This letter is for you. That was maybe half the room. Cool. The waters of baptism are open for the other half. <laughs> um, so so he's, he's, talking, he's talking to people who claim, yeah, I, I follow Jesus. I, I say Jesus is the ultimate good and authority in my life. And so Paul's going to be reminding them, hey, hey, I know you guys believe this stuff. Um, Jesus is God, rose from the dead, his teachings are important to follow and all that. You believe this stuff, you, you mentally agree, but what I'm seeing uh, is that your lives aren't lining up with what you say. And so that's the spirit of this letter. And, and he's like, and it's tearing you apart. It's actually robbing you of your humanity. And I want you to flourish as the new family of Jesus in the world, in right relationship with the world and with God. And so this brings us to our text that Kimberly just read. After Paul finishes the intro saying, I love you guys, I've been praying for you, you're on my heart, um, he, he launches into the main body of his argument. Um, and so here it is, verse 10, first verse of it. Up on the screen, he says, I appeal to you, this is intense actually, 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. How does that hit you? It's like a tall order, it feels like. How many tens of thousands of denominations are there? How many different political persuasions exist in the church? So I'll read that again. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. That Greek word thought is purpose, goal. So this sentence, in many ways, this, this verse frames the letter. So Paul's going to cover a bunch of different issues in this letter. Specifically in this first half, he's, he's talking about issues around leadership and celebrity culture and authority and sex and conflict resolution. And to frame it all up, he says, I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. I want, I want to point out, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus. In other words, I'm putting my words right now on par with Jesus' words. These words come with the risen Jesus' authority. This is not Paul's opinion or some abstract ancient wisdom he pulls from, you know, some, somewhere. This is Paul putting his words on par with the words of Christ. Okay, so what's he pleading for? Because it seems like a tall order. He's pleading that all of you agree with one another what you say and that there be no divisions. So, again, how does that hit you? And so next slide, Paul's thesis statement for this letter comes to us in the form of a passionate call. He's saying, my friends, be perfectly united and get rid of your divisions. And I want to point out that word division is the Greek word schism. It's actually schism in Greek. And it was a political term for, for rival parties or factions. So the, these people were supposed to be Jesus followers, committed to loving one another and living well in their city, but they're now fighting and breaking off and factioning out and grouping against one another. Paul's like, not on my watch. I beg you in Jesus' name, get rid of those schisms. Have the same goal in Jesus. Again, this is a thesis statement. We're gonna get behind, hopefully, what this means for us. Um, the number one thing Paul's going for is Unity in the church. Unity in the family of Jesus. And so church, that, that's what we're going for this year. Park Hill. Christian unity. Um, now here's the problem. I have to point this out right away. Often when we talk about unity, or when we hear sermons from pastors, me included, on unity, it can come across as this nebulous, kumbaya, come together kind of feeling. Uh, like, are you with me? I mean, I mean, face it, like, who doesn't like the idea of unity? It's like, no, I don't want to be unified. I don't like, no, we all like the idea, abstract, of being, or at least the ambiguous idea of unity. So we have to define the terms. When Paul calls for the church to be perfectly united, what is he saying? Uh, let's start with what he's, what he's not saying. Okay, this is not what he means by unity. For Paul, next slide. 
For Paul, unity does not mean uniformity. So we're not called to share the identical opinion on every issue out there. It's not, that's not even on his mind at this moment. When Paul calls us to say the same things and be in agreement, he doesn't mean we should be like mindless clones of each other, you know, and have exactly the same take on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> we have the same takes on every possible doctrinal position out there. So it, 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 Paul doesn't, actually, later on in this letter, he upholds the value of diversity in the body of Christ. Um, so for Paul, unity does not mean uniformity. And also for Paul, unity does not mean modern tolerance. So this actually needs to be said these days because the word tolerance, it, it used to mean like there's right and wrong, but we're going to agree to live alongside the opinions or behavior that we don't necessarily agree with and not fight and go to war about stuff. That used to be what tolerance meant, which is great. That's actually close to unity. You know what I mean? That's like a great thing. Uh, that's like a normal part of being a socially aware human. Um, but over the past few decades in the West... Uh, with the transition from modernism to postmodernism and you-do-you culture, um, tolerance has taken on a new meaning, which is more like, hey, who are we to say what's right or wrong? And if you say what I'm doing is wrong, you're a bigot. Uh, so it's homogenize and just kind of be together and pretend we don't really have disagreements. When Paul calls the church to unity, he's not calling us to modern tolerance. Um, for Paul, it's not uniformity. And it's not contemporary tolerance. So what does Paul mean by unity here? For Paul, a unified church is a diverse community committed to being restored by the gospel. That's the key phrase. Committed to being restored by the gospel. Joining Jesus in the restoration of all things. This is the unity Paul's talking about here. Unity actually means restoration. It means restoration. Uh, so if you look at your Bible in, in your NIV, that phrase, be perfectly united, that's a single Greek word there, which means to bring into order and to restore out of chaos. So Paul uses the same word in Galatians 6 to talk about how we're supposed to deal with sin how we're supposed to deal with error in our community. Check it out. Look at this. Uh, Galatians 6.1. This is what Paul says. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person in a spirit of humility. Right there, under that English, the same Greek word. Be perfectly united is restore that person. Same word. It's amazing. This is what Paul's call to unity means. Humility and a commitment to restoration under the authority of Jesus, being brought into maturity and full flourishing in the Spirit. It's a beautiful call. And he uses the word again in another letter he writes to Corinth later on. And in his sign-off, as he's signing off, he says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice, and then strive for full restoration. That's one Greek word, same Greek word as be perfectly united. Same exact word translates those two phrases. Strive for full restoration. It's much more redemptive than just clinically agree on every point. It's not what Paul's thinking about. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay? So it's not at all about having the identical 
doctrines all the way down. Um, it's all about once everyone's had their say, at the end of the day, we are agreed and committed to being restored by the gospel together as the new family of Jesus. This is the kind of community Paul's calling us, Park Hill, to be. Uh, not divided, but increasingly united and committed to being restored in community. So unfortunately, though, as Paul's writing and as we're listening today, at the same time, like the church is divided up all over the place, unfortunately. And Paul hears about it. So keep reading, verse 11 and 12. My brothers and sisters, he says this. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. I love that. Like, like we're the true Jesus followers. Um, so, so, so we don't know who this, who this Chloe is. She's either, you know, some kind of wealthy influencer in the church, or maybe she's uh, a planter of a house church or a pastor in her house church or whatever. Uh, Chloe, it, we don't know, but we do know that s- somehow she was in charge of information that got to Paul about these problems. 350 miles away, Paul hears. And, and the news is that there are fights in the church. There are fights in the church. Divided tribes, tribalism. And Paul's word is, again, schisms, which is a term for political rival factions in ancient Greece. This has political connotations, you guys. And these schisms were tearing apart Christian unity. Instead of uniting around the gospel... This church is factioning off into these divided parties with competing allegiances. And so scholars are all over the map on what exactly the content of the division was. We we don't know exactly. All we know is that they were breaking up according to these personalities. Like, you see the list. Next slide of just, just the names. I follow this guy. Well, I, I like this guy. Like, and they identified according to these different personalities. And, and it do, so it doesn't seem like these divisions were primarily about doctrine. They're more social divisions. In other words, listen, this is important. Paul isn't calling them out for having different views on debatable issues. That's actually healthy. To hold different views together in love is super healthy. As the united family of Jesus, we can hold different opinions about whatever, you name it, like Calvinism, Arminianism, complementarian, egalitarian, if you know what those, like political, like political involvement, what degree of political involvement is, and, and the age of the earth, like these are debatable issues. You name it. This, there's a long list that goes on and on because we love debating, you know? Um, those are just a few of a long list of things not worth dividing over they are secondary or third or fourth in importance. And we can debate and dialogue and disagree in loving community for life together over those things. So how do I know these weren't doctrinal divisions that Paul's bummed about? Um, I mean, just look at that list. Do you think any of those men actually had different doctrine than each other? <laughs> like two, two or three of them literally wrote the Bible and one of them was like Jesus, okay? So, so they're not in 
they're not doctrine, they're not representing different doctrines. So, so it's very unlikely these schisms were significant doctrinal issues. Um, it's way more likely these divisions were personality cults. Personality cults. So Corinth was a predominantly Greek city, and the church was predominantly Greek people. And in Greek culture, there were these celebrity speakers called sophists. Uh, sophistry was a big deal back then. These sophists, they were like the main form of public entertainment and media. Uh, we, have mo- we have movies and Netflix and YouTube. They had sophists. And uh, they would tra- these sophists would travel around the world, stopping in major cities, attracting big crowds. And part of their goal was to gain disciples, followers. Um, that's how you made it as a sophist. It's funny, there's a lot of modern analogies. One kind of analogy, Canadian, you know, Jordan Peterson, Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, he, he's a great example of a modern-day sophist. You know, like, love him or hate him, he has two and a half million followers on YouTube, hundreds of sold-out live events each year, and everyone's just there to hear an eloquent, opinionated guy talk about life. And, and, and by the way, have you ever read the comment section on those YouTube videos? <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry if you have. Like the rage, like you have to wash your brain afterwards. Um, you need a bath, I feel like. But that's like the sophist culture of Corinth. That's the sophist culture of Corinth, and it was creeping into the church. Look how uh, ancient historian uh, Dio Chrysostom, he describes Corinth this way. Look at his description. That was the time, too, when one could hear crowds of wretched sophists around Poseidon's temple shouting and reviling one another, their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another, many writers reading aloud their stupid works, many poets reciting their poems while others applauded them, and peddlers, not a few, peddling whatever they happen to have. Like, he's prophesying about Facebook, it seems like. (laughs) But that, like, literally, sophist culture. Um... We even, have a, we even have an extreme account where one sophist's disciples got so mad at a rival sophist that they sent their slaves to beat that sophist to death in public. So, so this mob mentality, public shaming, and ganging up on one another with your followers, you guys, it's so appropriate for today. So appropriate for today. And this schism culture was creeping into the church. There were Jesus followers that were causing angst around competing allegiances other than Jesus. And in this text, the early Christians are treating different church leaders like sophists. They're breaking into tribes like, we are Christians for Paul. He's the best apostle. Or we're Christians, we like Apollos. He's super intellectual and he stimulates my mind. I feel depth with Apollos or whatever. Um, Or we're, we're Christians only for Christ, unlike those other denominations. You know, just as bad, just as divisive. This was secular schism culture creeping into the church. And so, my friends, as the family of Jesus, when our competing allegiances, you have the next slide, when our competing allegiances cause us to quarrel or schism away from Jesus' family, your brothers and sisters, we have a major problem. We are called to live as the diverse family of Jesus, committed to being restored, united. Remember, that's what that means, committed to being restored by the gospel. 
This is how we join the mission of God in the world. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? You guys, Jesus could have prayed for anything the night before he died on the cross. He could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed for more power, more gifts, that the message would spread quickly, that churches would be planted quickly, that people would be radical worshipers. But when Jesus lifted up his eyes to the Father and he prayed with his disciples, in John 17, Jesus prayed for our protection that we would be one, that we would be united around the gospel, around the truth that God has come into the world in Jesus uniquely. Father, make them one. Look at it, and then he prays for, he actually prays for Park Hill specifically. John 17, 20, Jesus prays, my prayer is not just for my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You guys, if you believe the New Testament, Jesus is praying for you here. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you're in me and I'm in you. Look at verse 22. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then look at the result. For Jesus, what's the result of our unity? If we actually stick together and don't schism out, what's the result? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus connects the success of the mission of God to our commitment to stick it out and not to divide over issues that do not equate to the gospel. Jesus prays for our unity. It's not our biblical knowledge that will reveal the love of Jesus. You guys, it's not, it's not our giftedness that will show the world that God loves them. It's not even the amount of time we do social justice. Did you hear that? It's not even the amount of time we commit to doing justice. It's not even our super warm and accepting posture towards people outside the church. Listen, don't get me wrong. I am a big fan of all those things. <laughs> Like, the, all of those things are fantastic, like being warm and welcoming and doing social justice, like all of these things as an outflow of the gospel, as an outflow of the committed belief that God has come to us uniquely in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and rose him from the dead after crucified for our sins, like 100% into those things. However, according to the prayer of Jesus, the thing that will reveal Jesus and the Father's love to the world is our unity around the gospel. It's what Jesus was after. It's what Paul was after. And this is what Park Hill is called to as a church, to commit to being restored, to sticking it out when it's difficult. And when we disagree about things that aren't the gospel, we stay together around the gospel. And I didn't plan on saying this, but... I'll just say this, I, I, I have a firm value for this unity to the point where um, I would encourage, if it's a schism that brought you to Park Hill, 
Like if it's a schism and a divisive situation that brought you to Park Hill, I don't know all the levels in every single one person's story, but, but I would encourage all of us to consider, um, has God called us to Park Hill to invest in Park Hill and be unified here at this church? Or is he calling us to be perfectly united and be restored and let no schisms be among us? What does that mean? What does that look like? We are called as a church to be continually restored and united around the gospel. And listen, we agree on this together. All the non-negotiables, we, we, like, we, we agree to just stick it out. And we die for them as a community. And basically, to sum up the non-negotiables, really shorthand, Jesus is fully God, fully human. He is not just the most enlightened human. <laughs> He's not just the one who is most enlightened, and that's it. Jesus was uniquely the revelation of God among us. He died for our sins on a cross according to the scriptures. He was buried. God raised Jesus from the dead according to the scriptures. And through faith and baptism, we share in Jesus' relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit forever. You guys, this is the gospel that unites us. This is the content of our unity. And so now as we live together as Jesus' family, Jesus somehow mediates his authority to us through the text of scripture. This is also the content of our unity. Somehow, this scripture, these 66 books, somehow mediate the authority of God to us. And so we keep committing our lives to prayer and worship, partnering with the Holy Spirit to be shaped and restored by his goodness. This is what unites us, you guys. This is what defines us. And according to Jesus, as we stick it out in this unity, this is what will show the world that God loves them. This is what will testify of Jesus' mission. And so uh, this brings me to an awkward point, maybe. I, I, I alluded to it earlier. But my friends, I want to say something. It might be uncomfortable. It's important to wrestle through this, especially in 2020, which is an election year. Humbly, as respectfully as I can, for the family of Jesus in America, the call to unity during 2020's election cycle will be more important than ever. This call to unity will be more important than ever. This is, going to be, this is going to be an ugly one. Politicians can't save us. And, and policies can't save us. They do a lot of good in the world. We need them. God has raised up human governments for his purpose. But this year, let's not betray Christian unity through partisan allegiance. I'll say it again, because I think we don't say it enough, especially in America. So this year, let's not betray Christian unity, trade it in for partisan allegiance. Absolutely vote your conscience. Like, vote prayerfully, invite the Holy Spirit into the ballot booth with you or whatever. Like, for sure, all of that, yes. But if I can channel, if you allow me to channel Paul for a minute, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters at Park Hill, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, the gospel you confess. And do not allow your political schisms to compromise your responsibility to your whole diverse spiritual family. 
Don't allow political allegiances to create division in the family of Jesus. Paul's like, not on my watch. I love how Scott Sauls says it. He's a pastor in Nashville. Uh, he famously, before you put the quote up, don't put the quote up yet. I want to save it real fast. Thanks. <laughs> Scott Sauls, I, I love his approach to pastoral ministry. Uh, he says, like, one of his pastoral goals, and he's in the South. One of his pastoral goals is to have a church that is equal parts red and blue. Like, for him, that's a metric of success. Because then there's some proof in the pudding that this church is actually about something other than politics. Something higher is actually unifying this church, which is beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how that landed on you. you got, if that raises questions, it's a great question to bring up in your communities this week. So, uh, Scott Saul's quote, he says this, Under Jesus, political loyalties lose their intimacy. People who disagree with each other politically can also enjoy friendship and common ground as they identify first and foremost as followers of Jesus. Whenever this happens, worldly methods like caricature, spin, and partisan absolutism fade from their politics. That is Paul's heart for our church. As we head into what is shaping up to be one of the most heated and divisive election cycles of my lifetime. So here it is. Jesus does not vote Republican or sign off on Republican values. He just doesn't. Jesus does not vote Democrat or sign off on Democratic values. Jesus votes for himself. And Jesus followers vote with Jesus in every moment of every area of their lives. Okay? Ballot box included, but every other place. So Paul finishes up this section, and he's frustrated about this. He's frustrated because he loves this church. But he's genuinely frustrated. He's like, you're the body of Christ, and you're acting like Jesus is divided. I mean, and he even says, I don't even remember... I don't even remember who I may have baptized. He even says that. I don't even remember who I may have baptized because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested in claiming some semblance of authority over you. That's how insignificant I am because you weren't baptized into my name. You weren't baptized into Evan or Kimberly who's doing baptisms or Park Hill. No, you're baptized into the name of Jesus. So Paul finishes talking about baptism here. We're baptized into this body of Jesus and we share in his life. We come under his authority. So here's the last section. This is Paul saying, so is, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Like, he's, he's almost beside himself. Like, of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul has no messianic power. No politician has any messianic power over us to save us. I thank God. He's like, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. Oh, except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And he's like, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> I love that. Like, it's not that important to him to say, I baptized 300 personally this year or whatever. Um, he says, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So today's Baptism Sunday, baptism is a pledge of allegiance. 
Baptism is a pledge of allegiance. It's all about whose authority is over you. Whose authority do you acknowledge? Not only that, but in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, talk about a political hotspot, Rome in that day, the seat of Caesar himself. Paul tells them that our baptism actually gives us not just a new allegiance, but also assurance that you're forgiven, completely forgiven of sin, washed and clean. You can point back to your baptism and say, I have full assurance that I am not only forgiven of sin, not only have a new authority over my life, but I'm assured I'll be raised from the dead, completely assured I'm raised for the dead in the family of Jesus forever. So our baptism gives us assurance of this. Here's what Paul says to Rome. He says, what do we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We are those who've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That is sign sealed, delivered. That is, if you've been baptized, you can point back to your baptism and say, I am the Father's forever. I am in Christ forever. Not only do I pledge allegiance to a new ruler, but I also am washed and forgiven and clean by that ruler, and I belong to a family. I was lost, now I belong. I felt dirty, now I'm clean. I was shamed publicly, maybe shamed by family or shamed by friends. Now I'm honored as a child of the living God forever, given beloved status that nothing can take away. Baptism assures you of this. Baptism is a sign of assurance. It's amazing. It's powerful. And as you read Paul's letters, you get this sense. You get this sense, and I want this to kind of land. You get this sense that for Paul, he can't even envision an unbaptized Christian. Like today, it's pretty common, you know, to take a church survey and find out that 10% or 20% of a church is just unbaptized. It's like fairly common. Um, Paul would be like, blow a fuse. I don't get that. What's happening? Like, that's my brain exploded. How does that work? An unbaptized Christian. Um, Because the baptism is an outward pledge of allegiance and a sign of assurance. And so today, here's the call as we wrap up. We've, we've We've had the table. We've had the Lord's Supper, which is also a sign of assurance where God comes to us and graces us with his presence. But baptism is unique. Here's the call. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, today the invitation is wide open. Confess, declare what we agree on. Jesus is Lord. The creator of the universe has uniquely arrived among us in Jesus of Nazareth. His teachings are to be obeyed because they bring us life and they lead us to truth. And then at the end of his life, he was unjustly crucified for all of our injustice. Buried, raised by God from the dead, witnessed by hundreds, and now sits at the right hand of power, praying for our unity. Confess this. Say, I pledge allegiance to that truth. 
and the Jesus that that truth declares. If you've never confessed that and aligned your life underneath the gospel, let today be the day. Confess and be baptized. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus over every other political, social, or economic power. And you, step, and you get to step into the grace-addicted, unified family of Jesus. We're imperfect, like, for sure. And sometimes we get distracted and we get divided over stuff. But we're committed to becoming more like Jesus together by the power of the Spirit. So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, there are three people who emailed ahead saying they'd be baptized. We'd love to see, like, three times that many, like today at this gathering. And just surprise baptism. Just surprise us. Come forward. Matt is going to be on my left. Uh, you're right next to the pool. And, and say, hey, Matt, our executive pastor, um, I, I want to step into the kingdom. I want to belong in the family of Jesus. I've never been baptized. So maybe, maybe the second category, maybe you have confessed Jesus, but you're an unbaptized Christian. That, that would blow a fuse in the biblical author's minds. They didn't have a category for unbaptized Christian. The problem with that is that baptism is a pledge of allegiance before a community, and it's a sign of assurance in your own life that you have been forgiven of sin through the death with Jesus, and you will be raised from the dead alive with Jesus on the last day. It is a, it is a, a moment of assurance that Christians point back to. And if you don't have that, that's, that's just a foreign concept to the scriptures. So to step into the waters of baptism is to step into the kingdom. I like the analogy of a wedding. Like, what's a marriage without ever a wedding? It's like blows kind of a fuse. I mean, in, in, post, you know, post-sexual revolution, now it's kind of like we can try to envision some kind of sexually liberated relationship where we're married without a wedding or whatever. But for the vast majority, 9.99999% of human history, a, a marriage without a wedding is like, what, you, what is it? At least you need like a county clerk or something. You need a witness. So think of baptism as a wedding. Um, the speaking of the vows, the presence of spiritual leadership, the family and the community around you witnessing and cheering you on. Baptism is to life with Christ. Baptism is to the kingdom as a wedding is to marriage. You step into a whole new identity when you step into the waters of baptism. Um, and finally, for the rest of us, baptized, Jesus followers, just wanting to see the kingdom come in your life, wanting to see more of the Holy Spirit's transforming power in your life, um, the invitation today for the rest of us, I'd say the vast majority, is to work toward unity in 2020. Peacemaking is not just avoiding conflict. That's false peace. That's what I tend to do in my marriage. My wife has an issue she wants to bring to my attention because she wants to be clear and healthy communication and resolve. I'm like, peace out. Like, I just, I have like an escapist like kind of thing. Um, but that's not, peacemaking is not conflict avoidance. Otherwise, all, the only kind of peace you make is false peace. God wants us to step into the tension of actually making concrete peace and bringing forgiveness into spaces that are schismed and bringing clarity into relationships where there's ambiguity. 
especially ambiguity around the gospel. Clarify that. What would it look like to work toward unity in your families, in your communities? Don't let hostility and divisiveness of culture creep into your family. Commit to community and discuss secondary issues in humility. Maybe there's a secondary issue you've been holding like super tight. Or there's a voice, not a gospel-centered voice, maybe a smart voice, maybe a political voice that you've been just gung-ho about and it's been blowing your witness for Jesus. I've been there. Way more often recently than I ever would like to confess that I've been there, I've been there. I'm being called to let go, lighten up, serve the person in front of me in the name of Jesus, where it's my responsibility to make peace, make peace by the power of the Spirit, and unite around the gospel. So for the vast majority of us, I think that's the call. If you haven't confessed Christ, come be baptized, confess Christ. If you are an unbaptized Christian, come be baptized, identify with the community, and if you're, like the, if you're like me, you need to hear the unity piece. What would it look like to choose to passionately unify and worship Jesus together in song with the gospel as a center? Is there anything threatening that center? What would it look like to put the gospel back into that space? What if we were that kind of community? You know, you know what I think would happen if we were truly that kind of unified community? where there's just all kinds of thought diversity and ethnic diversity and cultural diversity and all kinds of diversity that the gospel unify, and yet we're completely united around the revelation of God in Christ and the authority of the scriptures. You know what I think would happen? Jesus' prayer would come to fruition in San Diego because Jesus said it would. Then the, then the world will see that you sent me and that you love them like you love me. Let's be that kind of community. And let's start with baptism. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for being so painfully clear with us that you love us and that you're for us and that you came. Lord, we start 2020 with a commitment to unify around Jesus. I pray right now for everyone in this room, a message like this could hit 500 people, 500 different ways or whatever. But Lord, I pray that the one thing, the main thing, the good news that God has come in Christ and his resurrection has vindicated him and we will be raised with him through faith. Like this, may this be clear. May this be the thing that is clear. Our divisions will always be complex, but may this be clear. 